all of us want life to be easy. <laughs> I want life to be easy. When, when we dream as children, and we're imagining the life we hope to live, no one includes suffering and misery in that dream. You know, I, I can remember musing about how I wanted life to go at one phase, and it was pretty long. I wanted to be a, a wildlife photographer. I called it something else. I can't maybe a, a naturalist, I think, is what I called it, but nature, being in nature. And I would imagine studying exotic animals all over the world, and I was going to be so good at it that the critters would let me come in amongst them, and they, like Dr. Doolittle, they, they would let me touch them, and I would do things with photography that no one, no one had ever seen. I never included in that dream getting attacked and mauled, which is what happens when people do that. Uh, what we want is for everything to go according to the plan that will make us happy. That, that is what we want. Steadily, a little richer. Just a little richer, right? Steadily. Our housing, a little better. A little more comfortable. You know, incrementally, we're, we're not all imagining mansions, but just a little better all along the way. A little better suited to what works for us. We want a little more access to our favorite foods. forward movement and comfort. If we're honest, everyone sitting here, that's what we want. We want relationally everyone admiring and appreciating us. That our value acknowledged by everyone. Comfortable and valued. That's how we think about happiness. That's what we we want that. But what does God, our maker, want for us? What does the one who designed us want for us? Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. He made us for the good life. God made us for the good life. And he came in Christ to restore the good life. But... Obviously, what we think about, what we imagine as the good life and how to achieve it is very different from what he designed and how he has set about to bring it to us, to bring it about. In our passage today, the Apostle John, we're looking at the whole of chapter 20. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus came, he suffered, he suffered, he died. And he rose in order to give us life. And John tells us that his gospel, the gospel that he wrote, was written so that we could begin to receive it. This good life. Chapter 20, verse 31, he says explicitly, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing that, receiving that, accepting that, you may have the good life. 
88 times in the Gospel of John. 88 times. John uses a form of the word believe. It's pretty significant to the Gospel. To put faith in. To believe. So the good news of Jesus is given to be believed. Not just to satisfy interest. Not just to be a... a uh, a matter of uh, an item of knowledge, something that happened. But by believing, people are changed. You're changed. A new life comes. We begin to experience something new. So what this chapter and this gospel also show is that this believing this putting trust in, it comes with cost. So that is, receiving the restoration of the good life is not at all by the means that we want. Because remember, what we want is steadily improving comfort, steadily improving acknowledgement, being valued, steady comfort. No cost. So enjoying the good life that God has for us, growing in it, coming to this fullness, includes a lot more discomfort, confusion, pain, and disorientation than we would like. I don't want it either. You're sitting there, I don't want it. I don't want that discomfort. You don't want it. So the Lord draws us to consider what do you want? It's, that is the first question that Jesus asks the disciples in this gospel. They're following him. Remember that? It's been a long time since we were in John chapter 1. He turns and he says, what do you want? And then he keeps asking it. And he keeps asking it. And he comes and he asks again. He asks us, do you want the endless frustrations? of trying to get the world to conform to your desires and trying to get the people around you to conform to you? Or do you want the good life that he will give? And all that that includes. Well, John chapter 20, the Lord brings his disciples and then everyone who hears from them, including us, who hears of his resurrection, he brings us all to the question, what do you believe about life? We hear that on the, the evening of the first day of the week after his crucifixion, some number of his disciples were gathered in that upper room in a house. We know that Thomas wasn't with them. We don't know the exact number. But at least a few of them had headed off in dis different directions. They... You know, some had gone to Emmaus, some had gone back to Galilee. But aside from Thomas, ten of the apostles are there. And the doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. It is probably impossible for us to imagine what they felt that moment. The, the Passover celebration that they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate had gone terribly wrong. 
every expectation had gone wrong. Everything had seemed to be going right the week before. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey. Shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He had gone to the temple. He'd driven out those who were misusing it. Unholy commerce was disallowed. The court of the Gentiles was preserved. But then there was that night. At that meal, marking the beginning of the celebration of the feast, Jesus had washed their feet. And then he'd said all those unsettling things about leaving them. And, and then he talked about sending a comforter and also returning to them. And then he'd get them. And, and then they'd gone to the garden and they'd had that monumentous failure of will. Everything they'd thought about themselves had proved to be untrue. They didn't have faithfulness like they thought they had. And then they'd all fled. And he had gone alone to torture and torment. And they had seen him torn, mocked, disgraced, publicly humiliated, beyond anything any of them had ever seen before. This is the one they had loved, the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was to be the king. And then he'd, he'd been their friend. He'd been their mentor, their shepherd, their pastor. He'd, he'd been their world. They'd come, they'd come to know that he spoke for God in a way that no one else could. But then all of that had been proven wrong. They had been wrong. The disorientation, I just don't think we can get. But every single plan had been disappointed. And a Roman cross had proven where, where real power was. It, power is with weapons. Power is with the government. They had put their faith in this one who could work miracles, but that wasn't enough. God wasn't the God they thought. So striking at the very foundation of who they, they understand owns the world, they had to entertain that maybe the Roman gods were more powerful than the God of Israel. The one who gave power to their Christ. Maybe Yahweh wasn't who they thought he was. So they had no categories for what had happened. They were undone. They were broken hearted. You know that ache we sometimes get? Where there's like a hole in there? And then that morning, it brings us up to to the chapter. Then this strangeness of this morning. First this group of women goes to the tomb and the confusion sort of added to the body's gone. There are angels announcing um, Peter and John had seen an empty tomb. Mary Magdalene had had some sort of vision, a powerful, powerful vision in which she sees Jesus 
This is what they're thinking. She had seen the risen Christ. It must have been a vision. But where is he? So they're behind locked doors. What was in their minds? The swirl, the confusion, trying to make sense. Doubts, the ache, the emptiness, anger, frustration. Who is God? Shame, the shame, the shame. And that's when Jesus comes into their midst. That's when he speaks the healing word for all of those things. If we imagine those emotions as concrete, things swirling in the air, when he speaks the word peace, they drop. So as John describes this moment, he narrows in on its significance. Because certainly much more was said in this moment. Certainly there was much more conversation than is recorded. But he gives the import of it. Jesus speaks peace to them. And he shows them his body to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. This is real. And what this brings, what this body, this risen body with the holes, what this brings is peace. And then he tells them, he's sending them. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he breathes his Holy Spirit on them. So it seems that the meaning of this interaction, the meaning of this visitation is about restoration and empowerment. But the two go together. Before the disciples can be empowered, before they can be sent out, they have to be restored. So most of us have had moments like this. Uh, moments in life of relative disorientation. Some of you are in that moment right now. We've had times where we couldn't think straight. There are too many inputs that we don't understand, and so we can't see any sort of way forward. The world we took for granted suddenly shows itself false. Assumptions that we had are, are untrue. And our minds become a wreck. All of us, we, can, we struggle regularly even to get a get hold of a thought and put it in its right place. Or, we'll, or we get stuck on a thought that bombards us continually. That one thought, even something as small as someone doesn't like us. And we can become overwhelmed by that thought. And coming out of those times can take a it can take a while. We need reordering according to what's true. We need those thoughts to be sent to their right place. The thoughts of who we are, who God is, and what really matters. Who is God? Who am I? What matters? Those things are restored in a single word. Peace. The peace of God. That's what restores those things. 
And that's what Jesus speaks to these struggling disciples in that moment. And he restores them. He puts the broken thoughts back together. He puts them back together. And remarkably, what they find is God is, in fact, who they thought he was. He is who they thought. Not only was Rome not stronger, death is not stronger. The Christ, the Messiah, the only true, the only righteous one was, turns out, even more righteous, even more powerful than they had imagined him. But until Jesus speaks peace, they can't put any of that in the right place. Even when they see him, as Mary Magdalene saw him, they are not in, in their own power able to order their own thoughts, able to put them back together. He must do it. And whatever God speaks, he brings into reality, whether it be the creation of the world, that he speaks into existence or be the recreation of a, a, an individual person. When he speaks it, it happens. But the peace of God is necessary for the restoration of a broken life. If we, we've, all, we've known that. We tend to forget that. It's a cornerstone of our faith, but it's also a, the thing we tend to forget most easily. The peace of God is necessary for the restoration of a broken life, a broken heart, a broken mind. We can do all sorts of things on our own or with the help of others to quiet, to address certain confusions, to dampen certain responses. That's what uh, we have whole industries built around, is dampening our responses. Shutting down unpleasant patterns. We can do a lot in that. But restoration, that's another matter altogether. Quieting, dampening we can, we can do. Restoration we cannot do. Jesus isn't just restoring them to be Galilean fishermen again. Okay, now you can cope. Now you can go back to those nets. Now you can go back to the mud hut. So it's not like, oh good. Now I'm not afraid for my life anymore and I can go again to the lake to fish without worrying if God exists. Jesus restores them to become men and women fully alive. Fully alive. In a way they had never been before. They're not recovered here. They're not fixed. They're restored. They're made whole. Their faith had been rightly placed and now they know it. They know it. And by restoring their faith, he unites them to himself. So lest we miss how this works, or, that, or they miss how this works, John shows us that in the same moment of the restoring, he empowers and sends. I think that's why Jesus put those together in this moment. He restores and then he sends. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's 
how this restoration happens. You receive the Holy Spirit. So the implication is that in one sense, they cannot be uh, fully restored and they can't enjoy that peace without the Holy Spirit. The first time Jesus says peace, he quiets their minds. But he says peace twice. The second time, he restores their souls, quieting restoration. The means for that deeper restoration is the working of the Spirit. Deep in the inner being, God comes to those inner places and he does what he said he would do. He comes to dwell. He dwells with them. He unites them to himself. Earlier, earlier in that week, on that Thursday, he said, in that day which would be a few days hence, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And there it is. On this night, he says, as the Father has sent me, this, this unification that I talked about, as he has sent me, even so I'm sending you now, as an extension, as apostles. We might wonder why God didn't wait until Pentecost with these that sometimes occurs to us when we read this. He was going to empower the, the church. He was going to create the church, fill and equip. Well, simply, they will need the Spirit to understand what he's about to teach them. Anything that he's going to tell them. For the next 40 days, Jesus is going to be with them, visiting, opening their minds to the Scripture. He's going to talk with them, teach them. And spiritual things are spiritually understood. They need the Holy Spirit to understand what he's going to teach them. So Jesus gives them himself. He gives them the mind of God to guide their thinking. Lest they slip back into the chaos. This idea is important for us to make sense of the last thing that John records of Jesus' words on that night. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. That group of people, it's a plural you there. That group, the newly created people of God, they need the mind of God to guide them. They're going to need the mind of God to regulate their fellowship. Because they're not going to draw up a charter. They're not going to draw up bylaws. That doesn't happen. They're, they're not going to set a constitution to, to govern membership. If you forgive, if you as a group forgive the sins of any, the church has the Holy Spirit to regulate its affairs in agreement with what Jesus has spoken. So in accordance with the word of God, he enables that to happen. Now they need to know this because they want Jesus to stay around and do that for them. They don't want to be making those decisions. They want him to personally lead them. But he's empowering them to be his witnesses. He's empowering them 
to hold together. He wants them to know the Holy Spirit is going to lead you as a group. You will know what to do. You will know how to operate. And by attending to the words of Jesus, by listening to the Spirit, this group of now fully alive brothers and sisters, they are going to rightly declare when someone is penitent, when someone has repentance. They will see it and they will know it. And they will also know when someone is not. Friends, we, we need all of this. All, all of this. All that they were given, we need. We need peace. We need restoration. We need empowerment to be his witnesses, to live together. And it's our Father's good pleasure, not just to quiet our fears, not just to bring us comfort, which is what we want. Not just to maximize our earning potential. Not just to enable and equip us to have a better, more comfortable house. But to bring us to fullness of life. Each one of us was made with particular capacities to know God and to enjoy Him and to enjoy other people to enjoy life and the world he's given. Our, our restoration includes coming into strength to better enjoy what he's given. It does include that. More capacities, more power. But our restoration is that we might know him and that pouring out from us the goodness and the life of God comes to our world and he gives us his spirit for that mission. And if securing the good life, if securing the good life for people meant the incarnation of the Son of God and it meant suffering and it meant torment and death for him, then all the other talk about suffering throughout the Bible, the suffering of the people of God, that's for us. That makes sense too. Coming into life, coming into fullness, required his suffering. Ours must be part of it too. Our hearts, our desires are truly changed when we act on what the Word says and on what the Spirit urges. And that will be hard. It will be hard. It will mean not pursuing happiness in the ways of the world. Not pursuing happiness according to what your flesh demands. Not accepting what the devil offers. It will mean trusting the Lord to reshape us. It will mean admitting that we can't do it on our own. And that is my temptation. And if you've been in the church for very long, that's probably yours too, is to, to think if I just live, if I live rightly, I will avoid suffering. 
I can get out of it somehow. But when we act in accordance with what? When we act in accordance with the Lord that we claim, he changes us. And the primary instrument that he uses to change us suffering. Our, our identity, this, our identity is cemented and it's strengthened and it's deepened when we continue to act in faith through difficulty. When we act on our profession, when it hurts. So do you want to grow in love? Then love someone who is difficult to love. Do you want to feel, feel love? Do you want to feel the power of God? Then give it to someone. Give someone love who is difficult. So all those, all those New Testament urgings, you know the ones, to be kind, to be gentle, long-suffering, forbearing, forgiving, those aren't to make God happy. And that is what I default to, is I'm doing this because I want to make God happy. Those aren't to make God happy. Those are to change you. Those are to experience God and his power in you. He gives us commands that will change us when we act on them. I conclude here, if any of this is making sense to you, any part of this, if any of this is dropping into place and you feel in yourself a yes, rejoice. Because that is his spirit working in you. None of this makes sense to the, the perspective of the world. If it makes sense, rejoice. Yes. He's working in you. With whatever tiny bit of faith that we have now, add willingness. Willingness. Add the willingness to listen to God, the willingness to obey when he nudges you, the willingness to say his word is true. Whether I understand every bit of it or not, I will yield to it. The peace is offered. His word is peace. But its condition is the willingness to receive it. May it be, Lord, you know that it is especially hard for us to receive your word when it is uncomfortable or it's going to lead us to difficult things, to unpleasant conversations, awkward situations. You know, we just want to flee from those. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. Transform us. Enable faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name.